For over 20 years, Charles Kuralt invited us to see parts of America that you don't very often get a chance to see. The on-the-road segments were, in my view, as a little boy at least, some of the best parts of the CBS Evening News. And I enjoyed it also when he originated Sunday Morning way back in 1979. I remember watching a news report. Now, understand I caught this in the middle part of the report where they were talking about Charles Kuralt. And now this was in 1997 on the 4th of July. I got to the end of the report, didn't really hear anything that would have suggested anything, but they were profiling Kuralt. I think in a way I was hoping against hope that what I was afraid of wasn't happening. What I was afraid of did. He passed away on the 4th of July at the age of 62 in 1997. I'm going to take a moment to remember some of the stories that he told on the road as well as on Sunday morning and relive a few memories over 20 years past. This show was going to be last week, but the passing of Charlie Daniels pushed it back to today, so we're doing it today. Remembering Charles Geralt on the other side of this break. Did you really think that this city of ours called Kansas City was going to stay down? It's not staying down long. Comeback is Happening, sponsored by Fox 4. The best way I know to start a tribute to, as Charles Osgood once said, the greatest storyteller television ever had, would be from Mr. Osgood himself. He has a biography of the man that made On the Road very famous. Mr. Osgood, take it away. He was born in Wilmington, North Carolina on the 10th of September, 1934 to a school teacher and a social worker and had a radio show of his own before he was old enough legally to operate a car. His mother would drive him to the station. He had evidently already settled the matter of what kind of life he wanted. You can see it in his eyes even as a boy, and then as a young man in jacket and tie, he knew what he was meant to be, and knew too, I think, that it wouldn't take him very long. It didn't take him very long. Merely out of college in North Carolina, Charles Curald went to work for CBS News. What they're practicing for is not just a game. The World Series is an event in search of a hero. Which was where he stayed. 37 years. 
It was just about here that Jacques Cartier stopped in 1534, unable to maneuver his boat past the rapids of the St. Lawrence River. Where he stopped, other men are beginning on this April afternoon in 1959. This is where the St. Lawrence Seaway begins. In a moment, an eyewitness report on Cuba today by correspondent Charles Caron. He stayed at CBS News, yes, but he did not stay put. From the very first, Charles Corral was a traveling man. The Bolsonaro's been hanging around in this alley in Copacabana for a long time. A new cult waiting for some members. The tourists all walked right by on their way to the big nightclubs, where the samba reminded them that they were in Brazil, and where the twist reminded them that by jet, they're only nine and a half hours from the Peppermint Lounge. Dismissed by his employer, deserted by his union, unneeded by his community, ignored by his country, except for $56 a month in food stamps, Ivy Johnson mines only enough coal now to keep his own family warm. And nobody pays him for that. He liked to say that he never was a real reporter. That wasn't true. He was. Everything you're about to see took place in Vietnam on Christmas, and on the days just preceding Christmas. We thought you might be interested to know what it was like. He went to all the dangerous places reporters are supposed to go. That's the one will take home about 15 minutes. Sir. Alpha, Oscar, Alpha, Oscar, this is Alpha November, Alpha November, over. If you're the kind of praise, you might praise that these other brave men, the third platoon of A Company, all leave this terrible place safely and come home to you next Christmas. The temperature is only about 10. And he went to some places no one is supposed to go. The thing about the Arctic in the spring is that you go along with beautiful weather, the sun is shining down, blue sky overhead, a gentle breeze, and then a blow like this comes along to remind you where you are. And in all those places, he did brilliant memorable work. People who come from towns where the streets are named Oak or Maple or Maine are always disturbed by the cold, anonymous sound of New York street names. It's true that 117th isn't exactly the most romantic or imaginative name for a street, but you shouldn't conclude from that that 117th Street is just a line on the crosstown grid of Manhattan. This block between Lenox and 7th is as interesting and varied as your block. If you begin to get a new song, I'll take my bank and home. He always got the facts, of course. 117th Street still exerts its pull on people. They call themselves 17th Streeters, and even those who grew up here and moved away often come back. But he got something else, too. Something that other reporters tend to miss. He got the meaning of the story. And he put the meaning in such a way that we came to think we had known it all along. Only we hadn't. As high as you can go on 117th Street is to the fifth floor rooftops. Up there you can keep pigeons, or read a book, or make love, or occasionally be alone if that's what you want. But you cannot go higher. He made it sound like folk wisdom, furnished over time. But it was his wisdom, furnished by his writing and his skill. A country of 14 million people, a sovereign nation among the nations of the world, in which there is not one doctor, not one lawyer, no courts and no judges, and in which the only law 
However, danger was not what interested him. Decency was what interested him. And so, in 1967, in his own country, in a bus, he set out in search of that. He said he was the best, and I trusted him. The philosopher Diogenes wandered ancient Greece, lantern in hand, looking in vain, he feared, for even one honest man. Charles Corot did better than Diogenes. Well, this is a song you'll never hear again. The song of the candy dancer. He found honest men, and honest women too, by the hundreds. The man loaning in the background is our cameraman. Mr. Blackman had just been put through a snap roll by a little old lady of 80. And directed our attention to them for 25 years on the road. Is one of those American tinkerers. By tinkering with valves and pipes and an old tea kettle, he converted his Nash Rambler to corn cob power. Nobody could accuse you of uh, wasting any string lately. No, not. He had already been to every state of the Union by the time he did that all over again in a single year for the bicentennial of this country. Finally, one report from each state every week for 50 weeks for the CBS Evening News. This is power meeting day. And he went, or so it began to seem, to every hamlet of every state, too. He was shot through the heart. No matter how out of the way his destination may have been, he always brought meaning back with him. John A. Mathis, June 10th, 1856. What was it that animated him? I asked him that once, not too long ago. I'm not calling for you to criticize your, your journalistic colleagues here, but it seems to me admiration is in sort of short supply, generally speaking, in, uh, in the world of uh, reporting. Well, it, it's unsophisticated, isn't it, to admire your subject. Uh, uh, you're supposed to investigate your subject <laughs> and, and uh, be... Uh, be have a, have a healthy skepticism about what he says. I suspended my skepticism a long time ago. It's so much more fun, though unsophisticated, maybe even unprofessional in a journalist. It's so much more fun just to uh, sit there and enjoy the guy and, uh, and learn a few things. I've made a school of mermaids, if maids is the right word. Don't you? Uh, feel a little old for this? Uh, well, you know, we go on the theory that growing old is only a bad habit, that a busy person has no time to form. He watched us and learned a few things. We watched him and learned a lot. About mailboxes and clotheslines. About a man who provided bicycles to children who would not have had them otherwise. About a landlocked farmer with a dream of the sea. About some men who made a bridge. And one man who made bricks all his long life. About a scholar in a cabin in the woods. And small towns. About an American born in Russia. Who went home finally late in his life to bring tears to the eyes of his countrymen. And about another old man of Russia who never did leave but who waited 50 years for someone to carry his message of gratitude.
to the American soldiers who saved his life during the Second World War. We learned about steam engines and dominoes and a doctor you could pay with a handshake. We learned about a league of women who banded together once upon a time to feed a multitude and a road builder working all by himself and a fisherman and a jogger of 104. Humiliated by a 104-year-old man. It was a non-fiction novel he was writing in installments over the course of a long career. The theme of which was that the heartland of this country extends from coast to coast, from the Black Hills to the Rio Grande, and from Puget Sound to the Florida Keys. We all inhabit the heartland, we learned. And now we all think we people from the first and these truths but we didn't and never would have known them without this Walt Whitman carrying a reporter's pad who heard America singing and who went out to collect its songs so we could hear them too good morning here begins something new he had a regular stand as well for 15 years on this broadcast here too all along decency was his interest before Charles Kuralt and Sunday Morning came along, there was no place on television for this country's great makers of music or of art, or for the great contributors to its spirit. He made a place for them. From the giants of our day to the small stories that turned out not to be small, he preserved for us every reason we have as a country to be hopeful. How much would we have overlooked? How much would we have forgotten? How much would we have failed to understand had we not had the chance to see ourselves through his eyes? If there was ever a time, just a second, Charlie, there we go. If there was ever a time that we needed hope, it no doubt is right now. One of the things that Charles Kuralt was able to do over the course of his years on the road was take us to places and teach us some things about history that we may not have been able to have found out ourselves. Case in point, he visited Thomas Jefferson's gravesite and had a few thoughts there. This is what he directed to be written on his tombstone. This, and as he said, not a word more. Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. Nothing about his having been president of the United States. He thought of that as just an honor he had once, to be for a time an employee of the people. He wasn't interested in honors. He was interested in liberty. Don't look for him down here in the midst of the family graveyard. Up on top of this hill, in the sunshine, he's still living. He was the architect of Monticello, but architecture was his pastime. Liberty was his passion. Walk around here where he lives and thought, and you he can hear him on the subject of liberty. The God who gave us life 
it has liberty at the same time. I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. You almost expect to find him up here, tabulating in the drone room. He could raise flowers. He could, a biographer wrote accurately, calculate an eclipse, survey in a state, tie an artery, plan an edifice, try a cause, break a horse, dance from the U.S., play a violin. Never mind. He gave up all those pursuits to pursue liberty. He wrote, I have such reliance on the good sense of the body of the people that I am not afraid of their letting things go wrong to any length and any cause. He believes in us. Maybe that's why we feel that he is still with us somehow. Would he be on the side of black people and poor people trying to gain their civil rights today? Beyond a doubt. Would he support women trying to seize the same rights as men? We can be sure. Liberty is his work. On the wall of his study hangs his plan for the University of Virginia to be built down the hill from Monticello. If a nation expects to be ignorant and free, he wrote, it expects what never was and never will be. He founded the university as an act of liberty. Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence as a red-haired young man of 33. Over the years, he changed his mind about many things, but not about liberty. As a white-haired old man of 83, he cared about nothing else so much. The 30th anniversary of the 4th of July was coming and was much on Jefferson's mind. The mayor of Washington sent him an invitation to attend. On June 24th, 1826, Jefferson sat down here and took his pen in hand to write that he was too old and weak to accept. There was nothing old and weak about that letter. It was a democratic outburst, as clear as a liberty bell. The mass of mankind, he wrote, has not been born with saddles on their backs, nor the favored few heated and spurred to write us legitimately by the grace of God. It was a useful letter, full of power. It might have been the first thing he ever wrote. As it turned out, it was the last. He wanted to live until the 4th of July, and he did. Fifteen years to the day after the Declaration of Independence, Having said all he had to say to us, which was enough, Thomas Jefferson died on this bed a free man. On that same day, a few hours later, away to the north of Massachusetts, John Adams, also old and weak, also satisfied to have lived until the fourth, also died. His last words were, Thomas Jefferson still lives. You were right about that. It is also ironic, just a second here, it is also ironic that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both died on the very same day. And I didn't realize until that piece that it was two hours, two hours, I think Charles Gerald said, apart. A third person, of course, passed on on the fourth, as I mentioned in the intro, and it was Mr. Gerald himself. He will be missed. I want to try to play one more on the road for this segment. And I just happened to find a good one.
we're going to talk about something that we use a lot of. Hold on here. I didn't set it up the way I was wanting to. That's okay. It'll be this one instead. Tricks that people get into with regard to domino toppling. Just a second. As soon as we do three, two, one, lift off. Hold on for three, two, one. First course, Physics 101, the Domino Theory, taught by Bob Specka in Walnut Creek, California. Bob Specka knows all about the Domino Theory. He should. He owns 350,000 dominoes. He makes a living with them, setting up domino exhibitions for shopping mall openings and television commercials. A year and a half ago, he scored what was then a world record by setting up and knocking down 111,111 dominoes. They required two weeks to set up and 31 minutes to knock down. It was wonderful, but it wasn't enough for Bob Specker. My lifetime goal for dominoes toppling would be to do one, 11 is my lucky number. So someday I hope to do 1,111,111 dominoes, which would fill about like two-thirds of a football field, and it would take about three and a half months to set up. A dream. It would be, yeah. I'd have, it would be, I'd have to build a building just to, to hold them first. Take about like eight basketball courts to fill them. And uh, you never know, someday. <laughs> He prepared a domino display for us. It is relatively modest, but you may find it diverting. How long has this one taken so far? This took about six hours and 15 minutes, and we have about 8,000 dominoes. So I finished a little ahead of pace today. Who are the uh, natural enemies of domino center-uppers? Um, mostly little kids at shopping malls, little ants and cockroaches and flies and... It's just the wind itself, people opening and shutting doors, the change in pressure in a room can knock them over. It's a very delicate system, obviously. And, um, you know, just, just careless, carelessness in general. The dominoes will stay there as long as nothing jars them. Whatever happens, once you start them, there's no turning back. And the first domino is the hardest. Can you give me a feeling of power? <laughs> I'll tell you the truth, I'm a little bit tense. <laughs> Should be good. You ready? I'm ready. Three, two, one. All right. And they're off. The first highlight is the double ram horns as the green dominoes fall out. Look at that. <laughs> this is just a little inclined ramp on a yard stick. Here we go with the title of the show in blue. Oh, it is on. And you notice the blue ones fall a little slower. Because they're painted with a chalky paint that causes more friction and they therefore take them more energy to fall over. Here's the double helix, the DNA double helix. As they, in oh, red, they crisscross back over. Oh, I'm touched. You always wanted your name up in dominoes, didn't you? <laughs> nice red one. This is the up the mountain. The dominoes go uphill, and it appears that they're accelerating as they go up the top. 
And this is called the integration effect. Oh, spectacular. That's beautiful. Here's a CVS eye logo in green. Specker was right about one thing. I always did want to see my name up in Domino's. I never knew the thrill until now. There was very definitely a thrill involved. There we go. The simplest things in life. Charles Corralt was able to take us to a bunch of them in the 25 years that he was on the road. He wrote books after that, too. He had a full life of 62 years. On the other side of this break, I'm going to do two more stories, including the one that, to me, is the classic story of them all. We'll be right back. is a strength like no other. Born of grit, determination, endless resilience. It's a physical, mental, emotional strength. It's about character, purpose, possibility. But one thing is perfectly clear. There's strong. Then there's Kansas City strong. For more than 180 years, Kansas City has faced countless challenges and powered through each to embrace a brighter day. Across our city and in every corner of our community, you are coming together by staying apart, showing your strength in solitude. Now is the time to dig in and do what's necessary. Today, Kansas City Strong is our battle cry. Show us your strength, Kansas City. They're strong.
Then there's Kansas City Strong. Visit us online at KansasCitystrong.org. A common habit we have as Americans, obviously, is going, for example, to the grocery store. And we use, again, I'm saying the obvious, I realize, shopping carts. Some of you, and I didn't know this either, may not have known the history behind these shopping carts. In a 1977 report, Charles Kuralt talked about shopping carts with the man who was behind, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, making the first. Out here on the road, we hardly ever run into any big shots. Just covering all the people who aren't big shots turns out to be a full-time job. Well, Sylvan N. Goldman is an important man, but when I heard about him, I knew I had to meet him anyway. So into the Citizens Tower in Oklahoma City, up to the 18th floor, out of the elevator, past the bust of Sylvan N. Goldman, down the hall toward the beautiful receptionist, and finally into the carpeted inner office of the great man himself. He was on the telephone talking to somebody about money. Sylvan N. Goldman owns land and banks and things. But it's not what he does, it's what he did. What he did changed everything. What he did was invent the shopping cart. You thought there'd always been a shopping cart, didn't you? Not until Sylvan N. Goldman invented it, there wasn't. When you talk to someone about shopping carts, and uh, they say, you invented the shopping cart? Well, I thought Adam and Eve had a, had a shopping cart. They'd always been in use. Well, it does seem they've been around always. The walls of Sylvan and Goldman's office are bright with cartoon tributes to his invention. Tributes to him, really. A 1937 Oklahoma City grocer who became the Newton of the A&P, the Edison of the Kmart, the original genius who made possible life as we know it today. I suppose the uh, shopping cart was an immediate success. Well, I thought it would be an immediate success. I was so enthused about the cart and the advertising that we had put on this cart being put on the market. I noticed this says shoppers came and saw and said it's a wow. Is that really what happened? Oh, no. <laughs> That's a big lie. <laughs> I went down to the store the next morning about 10 o'clock and I expected to see people standing in line outside the store trying to get in to do their shopping to see what it was that they're going to be shopping with without uh, having to carry it. So I went down to our largest store and when I got there there was ample room for me to come in. (laughs) There were people shopping, not a one was using a cart. How'd you overcome that? I hired for each store a young lady about in her late 20s, another lady about in her 40s, and someone else about her late 50s. And these people were shopping right up there by the entranceway of the store. Shoes. That's right. (laughs) Exactly what it was. And when they see the ones that were walking around there using, they started using. And immediately it became a huge success. Oh, did it ever. The shopping cart was born humbly in Sylvan Goldman's ramshackle carpentry shop in the spring of 1937. 
By fall, the carpentry shop had become the Folding Basket Carrier Company. And in time, that became Unarco Incorporated, the General Motors of shopping carts, turning out hundreds of thousands of seductive chromium beauties every year. They are especially beautiful to Sylvan and Goldman, for until his patent on the famous fold-up shopping cart rear end ran out, he collected a royalty on every one of them. That was very nice for him, and very evolutionary for us. Before we learn to walk or talk these days, we learn which package contains the Cracker Jacks and which holds merely pickles. If there were no shopping carts, nothing to roll our children and our Campbell's soup around the store in, what would have become of us? There might never have been a supermarket. There might never have been a giant economy-sized Kellogg's Rice Krispies. It boggles the mind. Consider the case of Kevin Ray Keesling, 21 months old. We met Kevin at the Safeway. He had a pacifier in his mouth and a box of Lipton tea in his hand. His folks say Kevin likes television all right and playing with the other kids. But what he really goes for is the big shopping cart trip. The supermarket is Kevin Ray Keesley's kindergarten sideshow and merry-go-round. Thanks to Sylvan N. Goldman, the grocery store is big business, and Kevin Ray Keesley is a happy kid. And to think, way back there in the beginning, nobody thought it was going to work out this way. Almost everybody but you thought women were going to go on shopping with a basket on their arms forever. <laughs> I guess so. And the first cards look like that. That's it. Uh, let me have that basket. Because a lot of people don't even know what the basket is like. This is how the housewife carried her basket. And then she would do her shopping. It wasn't a basket like this, it was a wicker basket that had a... And you see, in this way, all we did was take the same basket they've been used to shopping with and put it in there. And if, if they were just filling one, filling two, and doubling the, the amount of sales that we were getting, so there's no need of trying to make still bigger baskets. Here you are, sitting up here on top of the world, or at least on top of Oklahoma City, with a magnificent view, obviously a rich man. Was it shopping carts that made you rich? Well, <laughs> they didn't make me poor. <laughs> <laughs> it must uh, give you a feeling of some pride to realize what you did. You, you uh, revolutionized a big section of American life. I think that uh, any time that you have something to originate and uh, it becomes as successful in its use as a cart has, you cannot help but look at it and try it when you find it in such way outlandish places that you have the slightest idea on God's green earth ever finding anything like a shopping cart. In a way, it occurs to me, uh, these enormous supermarkets we're all so familiar with today would have been impossible without the shopping cart. Oh, yes. Some of the larger uses of the shopping carts are these uh, discount houses where they have groceries with all these other merchandise. A lot of them will use uh, two or three times as many of the largest supermarkets because of the enormous size area they have to cover. Got so it just isn't a grocery shopping item. It's a public shopping item for the public to use the most places they go into. Sylvan N. Goldman knew what he was doing. Don't give them one basket if you can give them two. Don't make it hard for them to shop if you can make it easy. Here is a man with one lettuce, wondering what else he ought to buy. Keep looking, sir. You'll find something. 
You have a shopping cart in your hands. And that is the other thing that Sylvan Goldman knew from the beginning. Nature abhors an empty shopping cart. What would our country be like uh, if you never invented the shopping cart? Oh, I'll tell you, it'd be just like it is now because somebody else would have. Oftentimes, we take for granted the shopping cart. Especially, and I'll grant you from time to time I've done that as well. Charles said in his piece, Nature abhors an empty shopping cart. I have seen some over full ones, without a doubt. Well, I want to do one more story as my Charles Crawl tribute. And this is probably the, cla the biggest classic of them all. A group of fam a family getting together for Thanksgiving in Prairie, Mississippi. This is a long road. It took nine children out of the cotton fields, out of poverty, out of Mississippi. But roads go both ways, and this Thanksgiving weekend, they all returned. This is about Thanksgiving and coming home. One after another, and from every corner of America, the cars turned into the yard. With much cheering and much hugging, the nine children of Alex and Mary Chandler were coming home for their parents' 50th wedding anniversary. Gloria Chandler Coleman, Master of Arts, University of Missouri, a teacher in Kansas City, was home. All nine children have memories of a sharecropper's cabin and nothing to wear and nothing to eat. All nine are college graduates. Cooking the meal in the kitchen of the new house the children built for their parents four years ago is Bessie Chandler Beasley, B.A. Tuskegee, M.A. Central Michigan, dietitian at a veterans hospital, married to a Ph.D. And helping out, Princess Chandler Norman, M.A. Indiana University, a school teacher in Gary, Indiana. You'll meet them all. But first, I thought you ought to meet their parents. Alex Chandler remembers the time when he had a horse and a cow and tried to buy a mule and couldn't make the payments and lost the mule, the horse, and the cow. And about that time, Cleveland, the first son, decided he wanted to go to college. We didn't have any money, and uh, we went to town. He wanted kids for us to go up there, so we went to town and borrowed $2 and a half from uh, her niece and bought him a bus ticket to go up there. And uh, when he got up there, that's all he had. <laughs> from that beginning, he became Dr. Cleveland Chandler, chairman of the economics department at Howard University. How did they do it, starting on one of the poorest farms in the poorest part of the poorest state in America? We worked. You uh, picked cotton? Yes. They all left. Luther left for the University of Omaha and went on to become the public service employment manager for Kansas City. He helped his younger brother James come to Omaha University, too, and go on to graduate work at Yale. 
And in his turn, James helped Herman in the blue suit there, who graduated from Morgan State and is a technical manager in Dallas. And they helped themselves. Fortson, a Baptist minister in Pueblo, Colorado, wanted to go to Morehouse College. I chose Morehouse, and uh, it was difficult for me. I'm not getting in, but I had to pick cotton all summer long to get the first month's rent and tuition. So, helping themselves and helping one another, they all went away. And now, 50 years after life began for the Chandler family in a one-room shack in a cotton field, now, just as they were sitting down in the new house to a ham and turkey and sweet potatoes and cornbread and collard greens and two kinds of pie and three kinds of cake, now, Donald arrived, the youngest, who had driven with his family all the way down from Minneapolis. And now, the Chandlers were all together again. Join me, please, in a word of prayer. Eternal God, our Father, thank you that the family is still strong, even in spite of the hard times that we're going through. Help that to stay strong. And when this pandemic does end, it may be stronger than it ever, ever has before. Thank you for giving us friends and family. Thank you for giving us opportunities to share our faith and our hope with them. And we pray that you'll make us stronger. Help our faith to get stronger in you too. Thank you for Charles Kuralt and the hope that he brought through the reporting that he did. And help us all, even in the midst of the negatives, to find the positives somewhere, somehow, some way. I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. And we'll be right back. Alex County, 
Tell us something good, would you please? Well, we have some good news of our own. Abby Eden, she had her baby over the last couple days, and she Aww. said her family is beyond grateful for the newest blessing in our lives. Atticus Christopher was born last Look at week. Dot. Oh. He surprised us with an early arrival, but we are so glad he did. He's long, lean, and has a big head full of hair. Big sister is so proud and ready to help out already. He kind of looks like Tyler a little bit. A little bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Family of four Gorgeous. now. Yeah. Mm. Very nice. Ah. Uh, oh. Abby, my friend, congratulations. Looking ahead to tomorrow... We're going to start a two-part series in the midst of a four-part on food. The first two parts will deal with hamburgers. Specifically hamburger places, one that doesn't exist anymore except at your grocery store. And the other one consider, concerns a hamburger outlet that is coming to Kansas City. And we have a Chiefs quarterback by the name of Patrick Mahomes to thank for that. I'm referring to Whataburger. We will be talking about those two tomorrow and Wednesday here on the New Directions podcast. It felt good to be back on the road with Charles Corralt, at least in a virtual sort of way. But the one thing that I know for a fact, he's the kind of person who could give hope to a lot of people just because he's able to find the decent ones and give them opportunities to basically share with America what they're all about. I hope we're able to do that a little more often. I hope that we can find a way to be friendlier and to be the kind of people that would take the time for love more than anything else. With that, that's going to wind things up for the Monday edition of the New Directions podcast. Thank you for being with me as always. We will see you tomorrow when I talk about it'll be White Castle at that point. Until then, I want to share with you some Charlie Daniels gospel. He recorded a version, along with Mac Powell and the Isaacs, of a gospel song that you heard from the Chandlers at the end of the last piece. I thought, keep the concept going. Let's do some all fly away to get us out of here. Guys, if you please. Give it a moment here. Just running a little slow. Just a second. Just a little commercial to get us through this other side. Three, two, one. Charlie and gang, get us out of here, please.
Miss Life is on.